Today we are going to talk from Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So if you want to turn there in your scripture, it will also be up on the screen in a minute. But there was a lady who lost her purse while she was shopping in a store. And there was an honest little boy who found her purse. And he found her and and took it back to her. And she looked in the purse and and, and she thanked him. And she says, you know, that's funny though, as I look in my billfold that I had a $10 bill and now there's just 10 $1 bills. And he says, oh yes, ma'am. The last time I found a lady's purse, she didn't have change to give me a reward. (laughs) So when you do something good, do you hope something good will come to you? And what if it doesn't? That's sort of a theme today. What happens when you do good and you do the things you think you're supposed to do and good does not come to you? What do we do if, when we expect to receive something for following God and, and maybe less trouble, more blessings, right? If you're following God, don't you think life should be easier and he should shield you from things and, and things should you know, not be hard and you should get more blessings? And what happens if you don't get those things? You ever think about that? Well, that's what we're going to look at in Malachi chapter 3, starting with verse 13. It's going to overlap some of what Malachi has already said, but we're going to look at it again. Uh, These are verses that reprise, if you will, some of the themes in the previous couple of chapters. Verse 13, he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, you know, they have that question and answer thing going on again. What have we said against you? God answers, you have said, what do we gain by serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commandments or trying to show the Lord Almighty we are sorry for our sins? So here's some of the themes we're reprising that Malachi's already brought up. But their words are hard. They're accusing God of not giving them the blessings that they demanded. So here's the first complaint. What's the benefit in serving God? Why bring an animal sacrifice? Why serve in the temple? Why do all these things? They want something back from God for participating in the synagogue. Their focus is not on what they can give to God. Their focus is is on what God gives to them. They want something back. What rewards can, can I get for following God? It's a consumer mentality. Unfortunately, in our culture, consumerism is rampant. I mean, when you watch TV, you watch commercials, the whole point is you need this thing. And they make you think that if you don't have this thing that you didn't even know you needed before you saw the commercial, that all of a sudden now your life is empty. And so you come and we get wired to think we deserve all these things and we should have all these things. And we come to church, sometimes we do the same thing. We have a consumer mentality rather than, you know what the New Testament has? A giving mentality. It's more blessed to give than receive. So big deal for us is to start sifting through, how am I a consumer? How do I have this embedded attitude that I should be giving and not just looking at what I'm getting? And so Malachi once again brings that up. 
But, you know, I can almost imagine they're complaining. Why offer all these animal sacrifices? I don't feel any better after I, I, my sins are supposedly covered. Why come to synagogue? I walk out and I don't feel that much better, at least later in the day I don't. Or maybe something like, you know, Psalm 88 is so depressing. Why can't we sing a happier psalm like Psalm 100? And not all this negative, down, dirgy stuff, you know. Or, or maybe, oh, I hope we don't sing every verse of Psalm 119 again. You do know the psalms were hymns, right? They were songs that, that were sung. It's the hymn book, if you will, of the Old Testament. And so, you know, there's a lot of complaining. There's a lot of a bad attitude. And their second complaint is, okay, so first, what do we benefit from serving God? But what do we gain by obeying, following his commandments? What, what do I get out of it? That's the message for, for today is what's in it for me. The word gain here actually has some associated selfish motive involved with it. What do I gain? What do I get out of it? What's in it for me is embedded in this complaint. So they're saying God hasn't upheld his end of the bargain. Look at all of these these things that I do. He should be emptying the riches of heaven into my pocket. We said that last week. Why? can't God just open up the treasures of heaven? I'm following him. He should be making me rich. And as we'll see, not some of the people he has seemingly made rich, even if they're not following God's commandments fully, even if it's halfway. They expect that God should empty the riches of heaven into their pocket. So why bother following God if you don't get some reward? You ever thought about that? You ever have that thought, disappointed in God? See, complaining shows self-centeredness. That's what the people are demonstrating. It's me. It's all about me, me, me. And here we thought we were the only culture that struggled with that. Their third complaint, why be sorry for our sins? I mean, if I feel deep feelings when I come to church and I feel sorrow for sin, isn't that good enough to feel deep feelings, deep emotions? But deep emotions don't mean deep commitment. It's not enough just to feel warm feelings about God. I'm not knocking them. I think they're great. In fact, I think we should feel joy and, and some other things with God. Sorrow for our sins and, and have some emotional responses. But your life has to demonstrate that. It isn't just about what you feel. It isn't just about, okay, I have a feeling, I have an emotional experience when I come to church, and then I go and live for myself. You ever see that? And I don't mean just in other denominations. Do you ever see that even among people that are your friends? We talk about it, we feel something, but our life doesn't always show it. You know, their attitude is a little bit like there was a husband who was trying to sew on a button and the wife was observing him and she looked back and said, the thimble's on the wrong finger. And he answered, yes, I know. It should be on your finger. But we ever do that, we're critical of others, we have suggestions for them on how they should be living their life or how they should be serving in a ministry and, and, and we just end up being more critical and we don't really get involved. But instead of critiquing others, instead of 
of saying, you know, the thimble's on the wrong finger in how you follow God. What does God want you to do besides sit on the sidelines and, and look at what's wrong with how something's done? Does God want you involved? Does God want you to get on the team and do your part? Verse 15, now we call, this is our, their next complaint. We've been through three of them. What's the benefit in serving God? What do we gain by obeying? Why be sorry for our sins? And now verse 15 of Malachi 3, now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So how do you feel when you see an arrogant person who looks rich and they look successful, the things they do work and, and you know, they have a great business and, or they seem to be well-known and, and such, but they're arrogant. They, they don't do right. They depend on themselves rather than on God. And because the arrogant are well-to-do, people just make this assumption that you know, they're the ones getting God's blessing, not me. I'm poor. I need the riches of heaven in my pocket. And, and look at the ones that do have the riches. They haven't des- earned it. They don't deserve it. Look how they've acted. So again, we've mentioned this before. Why doesn't God do something? Evildoers, they're saying, test God. And they seem to escape consequences. But again, I remind you, what do we see? We see right what is in front of us our five senses, but we don't see the spirit world, which is, goes beyond what we can see because God is just as real, if not more real in that world. But we don't see that very easily. We have to discern it in our relationship with God. So their fourth complaint is it's not fair. We follow God better than they do. Why doesn't God do something about this? Because, again, we compare ourselves. I mean, look, you can always find somebody in life whose situation is better than yours or worse than yours. And so you start comparing, well, why do they get this? Why are these people prospering? Why are they successful in business? Why are their crops growing better than mine? Why are they getting success and people patting them on the back? What about me? What's in it for me? See, the thing is that Malachi is addressing, God wants more than complaining and half-hearted serving among his people. He doesn't want you comparing yourself to the people out there who aren't living at all for God. You are living for God. God says, do it wholeheartedly. Don't ask these complaining questions that discourage yourself and others. I read a book by an author named Larry Crabb, who's also a counselor, a Christian counselor, and and he wrote this book, and he described in this book linear thinking, that he says we are so guilty so often of linear thinking. And here's what linear thinking is. is If I do this, then things should always turn out like this. So here's how he calls it. He calls it living the old way, following the right principles, then trusting that God will honor our, our obedience by bringing blessing. Right? gain a better life. So his way of saying it is, get it reasonably right so life works reasonably well. Okay, doesn't that sound reasonable? If you basically do what you're supposed to, raise your kids the way you should, 
live this life, then you shouldn't really, and you know, let's even add on to it. Let's say that you eat this healthy diet and lots of vegetables and fiber and the things that they tell you on TV you can. You're supposed to eat and not eat the fatty, icky things and all the sugar that we're not supposed to eat. And you get sick. You know, one person said, you know, what's the point of living and eating a healthy diet? We all die anyway. You know, that's the ultimate outcome. But you live, you raise your kids. And what happens if you raise your kids the best you know how, according to biblical principles, and they still go out in life and make some big mistakes? Some things you said, I taught them better than this. Shouldn't that guarantee if you raise them right? I mean, that's why we have fam, focus on the family and other kinds of programs to help us know how to parent better. But we think it ought to be a guarantee our kids turn out right. And if they don't turn out right, then there are no shortage of people there to tell you, you're a bad parent. Come on, we do this. You sit in the mall, you hear a kid screaming in a stroller, and you go, oh, these bad parents. But we don't know that. You can, they could have raised their kid and done the best they know how and done everything that James Dobson or whomever has come since then said, do this. And it doesn't guarantee that they'll turn out right. I mean, after all, Adam and Eve didn't turn out real great, did they? And they had the perfect parent. And so maybe we think if I live life reasonably well, I should be guaranteed things should turn out this way. I should be happy, healthy. My kids should turn out right. I shouldn't you know, be in, in, in distress over financial things because even though I tried my hardest, things didn't turn out well. But the problem is, if you live life reasonably well, you aren't guaranteed because life has bumps and bruises. So here's, here's a thing that I'll bet all of you know. You know that if you plant a garden this spring, weeds are going to grow. No matter how hard you try, my wife knows this very well. I had this running thing going, we planted a bunch of new plants, water them. And she's like, I'm weeding. I got to get rid of the weeds. Yeah, but it won't matter if the other ones are dead. But the idea is no matter how hard you try, even if you're Liz Tilton and can really grow successful tomatoes and all that, I'll bet you still have weeds in your tomato patch. And I'll bet there are slugs that crawl around and slime up your stuff on the ground. Because no matter how great of a gardener you are, it's still going to have some things that's going to make it challenging, isn't it? Why would we think life was any different? But you know what? I love to work in, well, I like to work in the yard. Sometimes it gets to be too much. But basically, I like doing that because there's a certain reward and and just the experience of digging in the dirt and watching things grow and taking care of them and pulling those slugs off and, you know, putting salt on. No, don't, don't do that. (laughs) Life still has bumps and bruises. No matter how well you grow your garden, there's still going to be some weeds, but some of it is just about the experience. There's, in Hebrews chapter 11, you've heard of the Faith Hall of Fame. It's a long chapter, and right toward the end, after we've heard the famous people, Abraham and and Moses and and even Rahab, it describes these unnamed people in verse 37 of Hebrews 11. It says, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. 
they were all, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, verse 40, since God had planned something better. And they are held up as they went through all of this because it wasn't about life's immediate blessings, that I get everything I want, that if I follow God, then, then he is obligated to give me what I want. I mean, they didn't even have houses, caves and holes in the ground. Faith has eyes to see beyond what's in this world. So two points this morning. First, do we seek God to receive rewards? Is your major reason why you follow after Jesus is because you get something out of it? And I'm not saying we don't get anything out of it, but is that our driving motive? So keep that question in mind. Do we seek God to receive rewards? In the early 1900s, a London newspaper carried an advertisement that read, quote, men wanted, wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness and constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. The ads signed by famous Arctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton He got thousands of responses. Why are people willing to answer this call, and yet most churches struggle to get volunteers even for children's ministry? Okay, so curl up your toes, because I'm going to step on them. In our bulletin, if you would look at the back, for weeks there have been several needs listed there. We have a need for people to take on children's church just for one month so that it isn't Dan and Lori and Fran and Mary who are there now. And for how long did you do it, Gwenny, without a rest? 16 months with hardly a rest. And so we've had Diane. Where are you, Diane? She's all the way in the... You can't even... Like, get away from the sound booth, Diane. (laughs) You're too close to it. (laughs) How long have you been in this, doing the sound booth? Nine years. Nine years. And, and praise God, the Bauman boys have been helping. But, you know, unless we all tie up Mark and don't let him go to college, that, that we, it may all come down to Nate. Are we going to burn out Nate? Because Diane needs rest. But nobody's come and said, hey, I'll help. No, we haven't heard anybody helping with children's church. I suggested, uh, we've been talking, that maybe, you know, we not have children's church and next week you're you're going to get a taste of having three- and four-year-olds in here with us. And if you're here Christmas Eve, you kind of know it's going to be noisy. But somebody willing to help? I said, I won't preach, and Karen and I can go help with the kids. Would that be okay? I'm serious. You know, we have to stand up. This is a family. We have people that need have their kids taught, and they need to be able to rest because they're with them all week long. I said this, I think, two weeks ago. We have a need for not only Sound Booth and Children's Church, do you know that we need a a new VBS director? And in months from now, if we say, hey, nobody stood up, we can't have VBS, I'll bet many of you are going to be really mad and really upset. Somebody willing to help or a, a committee? Could a committee do this? Maybe, I don't know. We should ask that question. Evelyn Stuber, where are you, Evelyn? Are you... She's sick, probably from typing the bulletin every week without resting. 
She's been doing that a long time, right? So every week, Evelyn gets this stuff, types up the bulletin, a work processor program, and then her and Bill come here and copy it, right? You copy it at home, okay? And so Evelyn said, gosh, could there be somebody that sometimes could help type the bulletin where I don't have to do it? Maybe Bill and Evelyn would actually like to go out of town. So what? how will you feel when you come here? Again, I've suggested this. I can do these things because, you know, interim pastor, I'm not here forever, so you can just be mad and... But we won't have a bulletin. You'll come here, you'll go, where's the bulletin? Where's the song lyrics? Well, nobody wanted to help Evelyn. And they, Bill and Evelyn went away for the weekend. Nobody wanted to help. And there's no children's church, so there are going to be a bunch of little kids in here. And there might not be sound. Maybe I'll get a karaoke machine to preach, and we'll do a cappella singing. Until we say, are we a family or aren't we? And if we are, aren't we supposed to help one another and not burn out these folks? who have been doing it nine years, how many, whatever many months Bill said. So I I actually am serious. I want you to think about this. I know I'm stepping all over your toes and you're saying, I hate it when pastors guilt people and tell them they're they're supposed to serve because I'm already busy and all that. But all the people here could say they're busy. What part could you do? What could you do? Because we have needs. We've been telling you about them and we have to get serious, folks. And I hope you take this in the spirit in which it's given. I'm not meaning to point a finger and say you're, you're bad, but I'm saying don't wait for somebody else to do it. They have been doing it. They're tired. They need a break sometimes. Warren Wearsby commented, and this is kind of getting back to that Ernest Shackleton, if Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement could have read like this. Men and women wanted for difficult task of helping build my church. You will often be misunderstood, even by those working with you. You will face attacks from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor, and your full reward will not come till after your work is completed. It may cost you your wealth, your ambitions, even your life. Would you answer that ad? To follow Jesus? Or do you feel entitled to a reward for following Jesus? Are you willing to sacrifice? Or is God obligated to bless you for what you've been doing spiritually? These are hard questions, aren't they? But this is what Malachi's writing. How deep is our commitment? Is it for rewards or for something more? So here's the contrast. Here's the other side of the coin in Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who had feared the Lord and honored his name. You probably already know fear the Lord doesn't mean you're cowering. Oh, no, God's going to zap me if I don't perform just right. It means respecting him, honoring him, revering him. Those who take their relationship with God seriously. It's the guiding principle of their life. They think about God through their day. Every part of their life is for him. And then notice the other part that Malachi says in verse 16. They discuss God with each other. Instead of discouraging one another with this litany of complaints, 
They encourage one another to keep focused on God. They encourage one another on following his commandments, on changing those areas of their life that don't quite fully honor God's name. And sometimes we don't know it. And we start talking and all of a sudden we go, wait a minute. I'm not sure I'd do that either. Maybe I need to look at that area and start thinking about it. And there are a lot of hidden things we're blind to. And if we could talk with each other openly, confidentially, without getting a bunch of advice and being told how bad we are, but really share, that's kind of what I get from that verse. Discussing, following God's commands. God hears these conversations. You notice that? He writes them down in his scroll of remembrance. Charlie and Chihuahua thanked me. Vicky and Valley praised me. Write that down. Not that God really needs to have a written record because he can't remember, but it does give us this reference point that he does have a record. And he notices when we think about him, when we talk about him. So, first question was, do we seek God to receive rewards? Second one is, or do we seek God because we want closer relationship? That just being... In loved by God and loving him back is enough even when it doesn't turn out the way we would have wished. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 gives details about God's record keeping. It says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. Okay, so we have more than one book going on here. The book of life is the book in which everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their name is written in that book. And God, when you, when you forget to pray or you get mad at somebody, you cut them off in traffic or whatever, he doesn't go erase your name until you get right. It's in there permanently. You keep believing. You believed in him. Your name is in the book of life. But then it says there's some other books, a scroll of remembrance, a book in which what we do is written down. We are judged each, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, by the quality of your deeds. Other scriptures say in Corinthians that your work will be judged. And and if you did something so people would notice you or you did it, half-heartedly or whatever, out of guilt and duty, but your heart wasn't in it, you might see some of those rewards burned up because they'll be like the hay in the wood that burns easy. And the stuff you did for God, purely for God, will remain. But if you're a non-Christian, they also, there's a judgment. It's not a judgment for rewards like the Christian at the Bema seat that Corinthians talks about. It's a judgment according to how they live their life. They're already separated from God, but the level of punishment we believe in hell will be based on their deeds. There's a whole lot being written about that, but don't listen to some of these folks that have written that there is no hell. God eventually, you know, will save everybody. Rob Bell being, I hate naming names, but I'm going to name him because he wrote, you know, I don't think that the way that the centuries that we've believed in hell is right. But that's not what the Bible says. It clearly, all throughout the Bible, there's places where there is judgment. 
you don't believe in Jesus, you will be judged and you will, your punishment will be according to how you lived your life. Separated from God. But God says, I'll keep a book. I'll keep books. Who's in the book of life? Who's not? And then the book of deeds. Well, verse 17 in Malachi 3 goes on with a contrast in attitudes and outcome to the previous complaining group. Says God says, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son and daughter who serve him. Those revering God, did you notice what they were called? His treasured possession. Treasured. And so they're saying, open up the gates of heaven and pour out all that blessing on me. Fill my pockets with money. But God says, I got something even better. You're my treasured possession. That word means valued, and it also includes being exclusive. And so relationship with God for every person who's in the book of life, who's believed in Jesus, it's not you know, based on punishment. And I read in, in Hebrews last week or the week before that you are disciplined, but that isn't the same as punishment. The discipline shapes you to be closer to God. And so you are related to like an adopted son or daughter, not on a, as soon as you get out of line, God is just waiting you know, to zap you, which is how a lot of people have thought through the ages. God says, you're my treasured possession. And I, I value you. And yes, I might discipline you like a parent disciplines a child, but instead of getting upset about it, why don't you say that God, God cares enough about me to not let me stay like I am? God wants us to be seeking him as adopted sons and daughters. So back to Larry Crabb. He talked about the old way, get it reasonably right so life turns out reasonably well. He says there's a different way, the way of the better hope the better hope of knowing Jesus well and pursuing his invitation to draw near to him. He says, we find a peace that isn't dependent on deserved blessings. Wouldn't that be nice? No matter how things are going, you still have that inner peace, that sense of God's love. And that's where the gardening gets in. Yep, you might be pulling some weeds, You might be in this soil digging out lots of rocks when you try to make that 18-inch hole down into your soil. But you know, there's a reward. There's something wonderful in being able to, to do that and seeing the plant grow and seeing the fruit or the flowers or the green foliage. Isn't there some reward when we do that in gardening if you're into that? Even when you know you're gonna fight the rocks and the weeds and the slugs, there's a reward. And that's the reward of following God isn't just things will turn out right, but I'm connected to God and I know no matter what, I'm safe in God's hands and he loves me and he wants to be close to me and help me feel his presence. And what could be better than that? And so it's called the better hope of knowing Jesus well. In verse 18 of Malachi 3, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So one day the whole world will know the difference between right hearts and wrong hearts. May not happen in our lifetime, but God will make things right. He's made that promise. 
and the half-hearted will be separated from the true-hearted. So let me close by asking you, well, I have one more little story, but let me first ask you, which group are you in this morning? We talked about the first group of those who feel like they're not getting the right blessings and the wrong people are getting blessings, the wicked and the arrogant. But which group are you in? The first group feels that God has not given them all the rewards they expect. Their worship probably feels a bit hollow. Obeying God's commands is difficult. Feeling remorse before God doesn't do enough good. Their spiritual life is not fulfilling. It seems like something is missing. Do you feel in your spiritual life like something is missing? The second group knows their God's treasured possession in every circumstance. They're not perfect people, but their life is involved in giving to others. They reach toward greater righteousness, even though those circumstances might be challenging and that serving and giving isn't always easy. But they know that one day God will set the record straight. But in the meantime, growing in intimacy with God is sufficient reward. Having that relationship with God is enough. So, as you can see on your screen, there's a pretzel. And so there's a relationship between prayer and pretzels. And here's how one story goes, that these snacks were made in Italy around A.D. 610. The Germans, of course, will disagree. But... The Italian said, 1610, there was a monk who'd been baking bread. He had some dough left over, so he put it and rolled it out into little, you know, pencil lengths, and he baked it up, and, and, and he put the figures in this whole crisscross thing that looks like a child praying, arms folded in prayer. He put them with syrup and salt and baked them in the oven, and they turned out to be really very good in case you've never been to Auntie Anne's where they're a whole lot thicker than your finger, but nevertheless, you know, they're tasty. And he got an idea. Why not give these little things out as rewards, these little pretzels, rewards to children, you know, who were were reading their Bible passages or doing their Bible lessons, and he called them pretiola, which is Latin for little reward. So the name pretzel probably came from the German word, not from that Latin word, but when he twisted them and put them in that shape, he wanted to remind the children that the pretiola would remind them to talk to the Lord in prayer because he wanted to encourage them to have a close relationship with God. So, as you look at that pretzel, it's a reminder that the truly fulfilled life in this world is a life devoted to that close, growing relationship with God. And pretzels remind us that that relationship with God, in the end, is its own true reward. Let's pray. So, Lord, may we search our hearts as only your spirit can do, because we don't even know, even in our own heart, what our own motives are. But you do, because you see all, because you're omnipotent and you're omniscient. And so, God, help us to see how we could just seek you and not just seek a reward, even when it's subtle, even if we're not saying, oh, I'm not asking God to be rich. I just want my life to be easier. But God says, don't pray for lighter loads. 
Come to me with your load, as he said in Matthew 11. My yoke is easy, my, my load, my burden is light. Let God share that load. May we know that, God, that what we really want is you, not just an easier life, more blessings, less trouble. We want you, God, even when that means that same things might be difficult. So, God, please, we ask in your name, show us how we need to grow closer to you and let go of a consumer mentality that wants to look at things and have them the way we want them. And show us how to be free in your relationship and love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.